0: Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.
1: You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. When we talk about the cities of the future and how they'll best serve the people in them, what makes them truly livable, and the need to combat the effects of climate change, we mostly talk about greenery. We think of grassy public parks and shady, tree-lined residential streets. We think of apartments and office buildings that are covered with plants all over the roof. We think about making our cities as green as possible. To promote public health, to make them feel less urban. And of course, to help keep them cool as temperatures rise. But is there a chance that we are missing the cities for the trees. That what cities need most isn't more trees on streets or greenery on rooftops, but more houses, more services, more architecture that people will use and engage with. I'm not actually saying I believe this myself, but it's a fascinating concept. And once you start thinking about how many times in your city a field of grass or some trees on a roof is used to justify private projects that won't actually serve the public, you start to see that not everything that's labeled green in our cities is done to help us or to save the world from climate change. Often in cities, green is just the color of money. So what do cities need to succeed in the decades to come? And when we yearn for greener cities, what are we really seeking? I'm Jordan Heath Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Des Fitzgerald is a professor of medical humanities and social sciences at University College Cork in Ireland. He's the author of a fascinating new book called The Living City Why Cities Don't Need to Be Green to Be Great. Hello, Daz. Hi, Jordan. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for finding time for us. This is a fascinating topic. And I, I want to start, I guess, just by uh, setting the groundwork. Where does the idea
0: of green cities originate? How old is this term? In its current form, it traces pretty specifically back to the second half of the 19th century. So really, what we today think of as the green city is as a product of um, what was called the social question at the end of the 19th century. And the social question is a kind of collective uh, or collection of anxieties around um, the the bad effects of the growth of industrial capitalism mm. and its instantiation basically in you know huge and growing urban centers. You see that all across the world in North America, in Europe. And that led to uh, inequality, to poor housing conditions, to poverty for a lot of different people. And so you had a range of solutions aimed at resolving what became known as, as the social problem. And around the late 19th century, a guy called Ebenezer Howard in, in England had the innovation of thinking about urban planning as the thing that might actually fix a lot of these problems. And Howard had the idea that there was good reason that people left the countryside, left agrarian work to come into the cities. They wanted a social life. They wanted better income. They wanted more opportunities, all the kind of things you'd imagine. Right. And yet he recognized the actual uh, state of life in those cities was often pretty terrible. You know, air air quality is terrible. The atmosphere is awful. A lot of illness, a lot of poverty. And so Howard had this idea that what we needed was something in between those two things, something that was not quite the city, not quite the country, a kind of a hybrid space that was both urban and green. And that was the Green City, the Garden City movement, as it became known. Um, and it really is the, the long tail of that movement that we're still living with today.
1: What do people think of mostly when they hear the term Green City? What do they picture? I know what I picture, but uh, maybe you can help us. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting
0: question, actually because the, the word green slips around in some interesting ways in these kind of spaces. So there's garden cities and garden suburbs and green cities and green suburbs. I mean, obviously, what it it usually means is some kind of measurable increase in the amount of green space in an urban area. Today, that's usually measured by things like tree canopy or the percentage of vegetation within a certain amount of space. Mm -hmm. But the actual, you know, physical experiential level, what you usually get is parks are more prominent, right? So for example, Ebenezer Howard founded two cities. Uh, One of them I go visit and talk about in the book. It's called Wellin Garden City. It's not far from London the main street of the town is 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 a park. It's a green space that you kind of walk up and down and lined on each side by 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 quite nice shops. So it's that kind of emphasis on always being in or surrounded by or having contact with nature in some kind of way is really what defines, I guess, the experience of the green city. And
1: I think most of
0: us would uh, inherently agree that, you know, trees
1: are good. Uh, their presence in cities is wonderful and does nice things. But, but you mentioned in the book, they have some negative political associations. How did that come to be? Can you explain it? I mean, I, I guess
0: I mean that on, on two different levels. I mean, one is I think this idea that we the the kind of unconscious or easy idea that a lot of us have, which is that you know trees are good, is you know, is it's pretty superficial. Um, it's pretty recent. I think for a lot of human history, actually, trees, forests, woodlands, wildernesses were spaces of terror and horror and fear. And you know, mm-hmm. we, we think today of the the kind of green canopy as a as a as a nice pastoral thing that encloses the city, but of course. For much of human history, the green canopy was a space under which bad things could happen, right? You were kind of unseen, you were hidden, you're away from civilization. So I think we should kind of at least provincialize that, you, that easy association we have between trees and, and and kind of calm and goodness and all those things. Hmm. I, I really mean it in, in a much more general sense, Jordan. And I guess, you, know, if, if I may, I want to extend that question, to the, I guess, to the wider um, kind of symbolic and political context, which is, that's at the heart of the book, I think. Sure. Because I think a lot of us have a sense that that cities are not working in a certain kind of way, or they're not working the way we want them to. And that's yeah. a popular political feeling, certainly where I live, I guess where you live too, and in certain lots of parts of the world. For some people, that produces a kind of idea of you know, positive transformation, like how can we improve the city? How can we make it better? What kind of things would make life in the city um, easier for, for, for more kinds of people? But for others, it produces um, what, I, what I describe in the book as a kind of a fantasy of return, which is this idea that maybe life would have been better or could still be better if we were to return to the living arrangements we had before the kind of great period of urbanization altogether, maybe even before the modern world altogether. Hmm. And I think that's a fairly unambiguously negative or reactionary political feeling and one that's increasingly common today. And like, not to be like really alarmist about it or not to, not to use the F word too, too quickly, (laughs) but you know, I mean, I think that there's an unambiguously fascist political sentiment uh, embedded in that. I think, you know, fascism has Always laundered itself on ecological ideas, right? Organic farming is a, um, its origins are in the British Union of Fascists. Um, And so I think it's in this context that I think it is, I think it's appropriate to at least have a pause around the idea that the city is something that needs to be remediated or made good with a canopy of green stuff. I think there's a lot of kind of dodgy political stuff going on underneath that idea. Before we get into why and how we
1: may have been. Uh, misled or even maybe just sold a bill of goods here. What kind of data do we have on the effect of green space or tree canopy on on
0: quality of life and and the environment and cities? I mean, quality of life is an interesting one. I mean, I'm pretty iffy on the idea that there's a strong relationship between green space and and, and anything like we might call quality of life, at least as that is, as that is measured in things like people would know, I guess, The Economist produces this global livability index. Canadian cities always do well in this, right? So Vancouver yeah. is always up there. Toronto is always up there. The Economist likes really expensive cities. <laughs> but, it, well, it, but genuinely, indeed, there's a, that, that correlation between expensiveness and um, unavailability of, of, of uh, affordable housing the ratio between those things and what the economists understand as livability is, I think, worth paying attention to. Hmm. I think where we what we do have pretty reasonable data on or, or where I think there's decent research is not so much the relationship between green space and quality of life in that abstract sense, but the relationship between green space and individual people's moods. I think there's a reasonable amount of research on that now to show that, at least for some people, some of the time, in some kind of situations, um, being in and around green space, having regular contact with green space, does have some kind of calming or restorative effect. And for some people who may otherwise have been predisposed to, let's say, the development of mental illness, that calming restorative effect over time, I think it's fair to say, at least lowers the likelihood of developing that illness. I think that's a reasonable, fairly uh, inarguable thing at this point.
1: When a city pushes to actually do this physically, to create more green spaces, to change its layout in order to further the pursuit of
0: becoming a green city, who wins and who loses? good way to think about this is the way in which contemporary construction projects are often laundered by the use of green space. Explain that. So, for example, um, there was a big controversy in London a few years ago about something called the Garden Bridge. Um, The Garden Bridge was a new bridge over the River Thames which was to be designed by a very famous British designer architect called Thomas Heatherwick. Um, And Heatherwick had this idea that he would create this new green space for London. um, It would be a pedestrian bridge over the Thames, a resource for the city, for the citizens of the city. But it became quickly apparent that what was actually uh, at stake there was less, you know, a park over the river, but really like a corporate event space, right? That people would actually need to have tickets to cross it, that it would be closed to be hired out to big banks in the city of London all the time. Hmm. And that really, you know, what was being created was a certain kind of privatization of space over the river. But that was being laundered by the idea of the garden, right? Because it was green, because there would be native plants there, that it felt like a public good. And I think that is the kind of thing you see more and more often in urban development. That kind of idea that once you put some trees on top, uh, it becomes a public good. Right. And that otherwise low value, low quality construction, construction that isn't particularly attentive to affordable housing needs, to what people in the neighborhood actually want, um, is laundered by a certain kind of relationship to green space, whether it's living walls, the provision of parks, and so on. So I think we do need to be attentive to the way that like things that are not particularly, uh, let's say, don't have great public value um, are often imagined to have that value through through green space.
1: We have a big housing crisis in this country and, and a big affordability crisis. And I am uh, in favor of and have been in favor of and most of the listeners on this podcast are in favor of finding ways to solve that, finding more housing for people. I live, though, across the street from a lovely little park. If somebody put forward the idea of, hey, we could just pave over that park and we could actually put a pretty big condo tower in here with a bunch of affordable units, I would say hell no. And, and I wonder about, you know, my commitment to a green city and, you know, because I can already afford to live in this city and what it means for those who can't when green space can take precedence over a less beautiful but uh, more practical uses of the space.
0: I mean, That's not what's going to happen, right? So no one is going to pave over a public park and build condos on it. What is much more likely to happen is something like the opposite, which is that someone's going to build a pretty crappy condo development somewhere in your neighborhood, and they'll put some kind of sky garden on top of it, or they'll plant a bunch of trees in the front of it, or they'll kind of claim that what is actually being built here is not some uh, private development to be sold on, on the market, but actually a public good for the neighborhood in terms of the provision of a green utility. That's what I mean by kind of green space laundering, let's say, developments whose benefit is not super obvious in terms of the wider wider neighborhood. I think that's the thing to watch out for, not the condos being built on the green stuff, but the green stuff being put on the top of the condos, actually.
1: Now that I picture it that way, I mean, I can picture several places in my city that are almost exactly that and several proposals for public spaces uh, that we have on the table right now that always have... These little green spaces, or these trees on top of them, to make them to make them look great.
0: I've mentioned the designer Thomas Heatherwick um, before, and I'll mention him again and I, at the risk of kind of overemphasizing Thomas Heatherwick. But he he built this really famous space in Shanghai called A Thousand Trees, this huge retail and kind of high end living complex in the center of Shanghai, which of course is a booming, rich, hyper diverse city in many ways. And what they've done is they've built this high-end retail and housing complex and they've literally covered the top of it with a canopy of trees. So it looks like a hill from a distance. The idea is that from a distance, it looks like there's a new hill at the center of Shanghai. Hmm. And it's that that seems to me just, you know, uh, is, is what should make us really pay attention to what exactly trees are doing in our cities. Like what, what is being smuggled into the city under the cover of the tree? Is there a better way to approach
1: the need, because I will call it a need for public space, green space, and, you know, all the positive things that it can do in our cities and balance that with the need to build uh, better cities, whether they're green or not?
0: I don't know. It's it's a very serious question. I'm like one that's kind of bedeviled the history of architecture. I mean, I, I talk a lot in the book about Le Corbusier, the Swiss-French architect, who's kind of one of the main characters in the book. And Le Corbusier, who, by the way, I should stress, is a terrible person, uh, a fascist, an anti-Semite, um, <laughs> was someone who's widely associated with the, the birth of the modern movement in architecture. Le Corbusier made this famous plan for the center of Paris called the Plan Voisin. You can see images of it. There's very famous images where essentially he proposed to just level this entirety of Paris, level the whole city and build these uh, very tall square tower blocks at regular intervals across the city. And this is often kind of given as an image of, you know, the kind of, uh, the horror of kind of the modernist ambition, right, which is the kind of the, the collapse of the city and its transformation into this kind of dull, machine-like metropolis. Hmm. What Larkovusi thought he was doing was creating space between the towers at ground level for the provision of green space. So he kind of had this idea that there would be like vegetable gardens and the kids would come after school and play at the bottom of these towers that actually by building up in that like really vertical way, that hyper-vertical way, that something you do also is you create more space at the bottom and that can be used for greenery, um, yeah, blue space, rivers, whatever it is you want. Right, That's not a serious plan. But I think the kind of relationship between those two things, between let's say verticality and density and green space, is often more complicated than we think. Um, and it's kind of well worked through in the history of 20th century architecture. I want to go back to the environmental piece just for
1: a moment, because I've often been told by climatologists and climate experts that we need to be putting green stuff on top of everything in cities as the world warms up and as we need to mitigate what will be deadly heat waves. So how do we figure out the line between there's trees on top of this because it's a corporate project and we just want to push it through or uh, there should probably be trees on top of everything now?
0: Yeah, it's a a really good point. Actually, I have a nervousness about this book being read or understood as in some way anti-environmental. I mean, that was my first question about it, to be honest with you. Right. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So no, I have absolutely no quibble or objection to the fact that there is clearly important work that green space is doing in cities in terms of climate collapse. Right, that that's clearly the case. And in the book, I talk a little bit about how people are thinking about that in Melbourne in Australia, which is a very particular relationship to to the worsening climate. I mean, I'm 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 in the EU right now, and the EU is literally today I think just passed finally its nature restoration law. And one of the big things the nature restoration law is going to be a um, mandated increase of tree canopy in cities throughout the European Union. Hmm. None of this, I think, is bad at all. I think, you know, the, the kind of evidence for what trees do in terms of bringing temperature down and making spaces more livable in that way. I mean, Cork, which is in the very south of Ireland. And this summer, we've seen uh, huge amounts of large rain events and lots of flooding. Right. Um, much more than we usually do. And it's become apparent that we don't have stuff on the ground to soak up the volume of water we're going to increasingly get. You know, it is obvious to me that we do need to bring green space into cities uh, to deal with the situation of a worsening climate. I guess I want to retain the right to be kind of critical at the cultural and political level too about, you know, the kind of associations we have with trees and I guess our capacity to, to retain some kind of love for urban space in its own right, right? To not think of the city as a thing that just needs to be transformed into a park or a garden or a forest, right? That the mm. city is a, a real thing in its own right and a thing that's worth valuing.
1: Okay, then if not green space, what should cities be focused on to be great? What should they transform into? Or should they not transform at
0: all? So it's just as you're asking that. I was about to say, um, well, Jordan, I don't believe in this concept of greatness at all. I don't think there's any such as a great city. But then hmm. I reason I say that my book is in front of me and it's in the title of my <laughs> my books. <laughs> Oops. I think, I think I do need I do think I need to own that a little bit. I mean, I I I guess I am genuinely sort of against the idea of cities being great, at least at the kind of macro scale. I mean, one always thinks like great for who, right? Every city is great for somebody. And I think, you know, again, to think about that kind of economist level view of the livable or great city, it's a very particular stratum of society is being attended to in those kind of visions. Mm -hmm. I think as I'm much more interested in the question of, you know, what does a kind of good everyday life look like for a lot of people in a kind of collective sense at the neighborhood level? in a range of very different urban spaces worldwide? And that the answer to that is is going to be a lot of boring stuff, right? It's going to be boring stuff around people's access to decent housing, to relatively secure work, um, relatively low levels of inequality, um, gender equality, all those sorts of important but dull, mundane things that we already know and are already not doing. And I guess one of the reasons I'm so consistently suspicious of the idea that you know urban transformation comes through planting trees is that, you know, what are we not doing when we're planting trees? Or what kind of solutions are becoming invisible? What kind of things that we already know about but don't have the political will to deal with um, are continuing continuing to be ignored? So I guess to take that question about what makes a city great or a neighborhood great or a place great, um, for me, needs to shift onto that level and away from these kind of grand questions about um, uh, green transformation. The last thing I'll ask you is, what would you like people who... I've seen the
1: title of the book and and worry that this is distracting from the environmental movement or just like I mentioned at the beginning, have this kind of inherent association of green space with positive outcomes. What would you like them to rethink while they're out and about in their city? What would you like them to look for? I guess what I would really
0: like people to rethink is, What they think nature is in urban space, what they think nature is for, of what it is about the city as it is now. And let's think of, you know, a city like, let's say, like Toronto so a very modern city, a very built up city with lots of, uh, you know, lights, lots of traffic, lots of noise, lots of human activity. What it is are those kinds of spaces that we kind of imagine to be somehow unnatural or superficial or not for us. I think we've kind of naturalized a kind of a very simplistic and superficial cultural story about the kinds of spaces that we're supposed to be living in. And we have this kind of naive, quasi-evolutionary idea that we evolved in a certain kind of space. And really, we should be back in that space. We should be surrounded by living things and greenery and river vistas and savannas and those sorts of things. And I just think none of that is true And I don't think it all tracks with actually most of our daily experiences of being in the city, which for all its problems and its inequalities and its violence and its capacity for harm and all those sorts of things, I think still has a real sense of promise and joy and diversity and human flourishing, right? I think, I I do think to be you know a bit grandiose about it jordan i think if we're going to think seriously about transformation in the next few decades and presumably we have to think about transformation at some kind of level and um, for me it can only be through a valuing of a commitment to the city and to urban life as it has developed over the last couple of hundred years des thank you so much for this fascinating
1: conversation fascinating topic
0: my pleasure jordan thanks so
1: much Des Fitzgerald, author of The Living City, Why Cities Don't Need to Be Green to Be Great. That was The Big Story. We would love to hear what you thought about that episode. We were divided ourselves about whether or not we agreed with Des, but we thought the discussion itself and the approach to what we need in cities of the future was a really worthwhile one to have. If you want to tell us what you think, you can find us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. You can, of course, send us an email Hello at TheBigStoryPodcast.ca. By the way, if you have recently sent us an email, we actually had a blockage in our email system. We missed a bunch of your emails. We are reading them now and adding your story suggestions to the pile. So if you sent something a few weeks ago and you wonder why we probably just ignored you, we didn't mean to. If you want to just talk to us and leave us a voicemail, the phone number for that is 416-935-5935. Joe Fish is the lead producer of The Big Story. Robin Simon is also a producer. Stephanie Phillips is our showrunner. Mary Jubrin is our digital editor. Diana Kay is our manager of business development. Sound design this week was handled by Mark Angley. I'm your host and executive producer, Jordan Heath-Rawlings. Have a lovely weekend, and we'll talk Monday.